Surprise! You thought you had to wait another week for a new episode. Well, guess what? We're coming at you with a very special mini episode that's all about the hosts behind the mics. Bob, Aaron, and I are each going to take the hot seat over the next few weeks and interview each other. We hope you'll get to know each of us a little bit more and why we even started this podcast in the first place. So please enjoy. Bob, it's time to get to know Meredith a little bit better. Woohoo! I think a lot of our listeners, they get to hear from you, Meredith, and that maybe they get to know you a little bit based on some of the questions that you ask our guests. But now, tables are turned today, and we're asking you some questions. Here we go. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. Here we go. Coffee or tea? Decaf coffee. Oh, complicated. Sunrise or sunset? Mm, Sunrise. Pitbull or Pomeranian? Pitbull. Me time or we time? Me time. Yoga or yogurt? Yogurt. (laughs) (laughs) Cookout or takeout? Takeout. Karaoke bar or jazz bar? Karaoke bar. Journal or to-do list? To-do list. Speed or precision? Oof. Probably precision. Mm -hmm. eBay or Etsy? Etsy. Home or away? Home. Center stage or stage right? Stage right. Concert or museum? Museum. Charles and Ray Eames or Frank Lloyd Wright? Charles and Ray Eames. Billie Holiday or Billie Eilish? Billie Holiday. Jimmy Carter or Jimmy Chu? How about Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> oh! <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> llama or alpaca? Oh, God, that's really tough. Probably a llama. Forest or city? Forest. That's it. Thanks for playing. Thank you. Some interesting answers there. Were you surprised by anything? I'm very surprised by Jimmy Buffett, to be honest. I mean, (laughs) I grew up listening to Jimmy Buffett, and my mom's first cousin was the manager of his band, I think, or backstage manager or guitarist. I don't know. Something was going on. So I went to pretty much Jimmy Buffett concerts every year growing up. I knew all the lyrics. Yeah. I think we all do, whether we want to or not. I know. <laughs> it's yeah. it's very true. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about those formative years growing up. You moved around a fair bit as a kid, four places by the time you were six. Yeah. How did that experience affect you? I mean, I was still really young, and I think, I don't know, I actually have a terrible memory, so <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't remember a lot from my childhood years, which might be good, might be bad. But I think for me, I think it gave me an opportunity to become very outgoing and learn how to meet people quick and fast because things were kind of always changing. And it also gave me the opportunity to study people and, you know, figure out, are you my crew? Are you not my crew? I was probably not using that terminology when I was four or five years old. I don't know. I think it really helped me growing up and kind of studying and understanding people, which led me to a degree in sociology with an emphasis on criminology, right? 
Tell us a little bit more about that, because that's really, that's a very interesting thread to your professional bio. Mm-hmm. So criminology specifically, I think that there were some really interesting points in my formative years where I experienced a lot of things that I think a lot of people don't experience, you know, family members suffering from mental illness, family members in and out of jail. And so I think for me, I took that as a, I never want to be that person, but I want to catch the bad guys. And I kind of took the approach of scared straight, so to speak. Also, I don't talk about this a lot, but my senior year of high school, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado, and that was the year that Columbine happened. And so that was a big part of my experience my last year of high school was remembering that day very, very clearly and knowing people at Columbine. I didn't go to Columbine, but knowing people at Columbine who were there and who didn't make it out. And so I think for me, again, it kind of went back to this like justice thing of trying to understand why people do the things that they do and how to make it not happen again. Mm. It was kind of like the curiosity of understanding how the mind works, but also trying to figure out like, how can you stop that? Or how can you try to prevent something like that? And I think as we've seen today, fast forward 20 plus years, we haven't been able to do it. So then you ended up studying criminology in college and then mm-hmm. like what career-wise, what because it's a little hard to connect the criminology to the design ops piece, <laughs> you know, at least not yeah. in a charitable way. But <laughs> I know. No. So, so I studied criminology and I was actually interned at like National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I was able to work with law enforcement and families to help find missing kids. I did that. I worked for the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, learned a lot about domestic violence and how that affects families and women in particular. And so when I got out of college, I was like, I really want to work for the FBI or I want to try to work in this career field. However, I needed to pay the bills, right? I got out of college. I needed to have a job. I needed to do something while I was interviewing. And if anybody's ever interviewed for a government job, you know that it takes forever. It is not like interviewing for the tech world where you're in and out in 30 days. It's like months and months and months. And sometimes they'll call you and then sometimes they forget about you and they call you back. And so, you know, both of my parents were in advertising. They both worked at Leo Burnett when I was a kid and my mom, both of them were very creative. And so I thought, well, if I can't do crime, what can I, or if I can't do this as a career, what do I, what am I at least knowledgeable about? And what do I at least find interesting? And so I started working as a customer service representative at a book printing company in Marin. And I learned all about book printing, printing over in China, worked with all of these publishers around the world to get all these like art, architecture, and design books out into the world, which was so cool. And I have the coolest collection of books as a result. <laughs> and, you know, after doing that and landing deals and printing all these books and going to China and all that, I was like, well, I really like this creative stuff. You know, I like working with designers. I loved working with book designers. And so my natural next step was, okay, what about the agency world? What about trying to see what else is out there that's still creative and can use my skill set of being extremely type A and getting things done? And so I moved into the agency world after that. And then from there, I just started falling in love with design. I was still interviewing 
for some of these jobs that were still taking forever. And the best thing that ever happened to me was ending up at IDEO. And, you know, I remember, and I've, I've said this before to people, is I remember I interviewed for the FBI as an intelligence analyst. And it was right, and this is going to date me, but this was during George Bush's presidency. You know, 9-11 had just happened. And the FBI was really looking for people who had language you know, like who knew Farsi. I tried a Farsi class for two classes and then I gave up. I was like, this isn't possible. It was also really interesting to see who takes a Farsi class in San Francisco. You know, they all say they're doing it for work, but you're like, "Mm mm-hmm, I think I know what you're doing this for. You're applying for the same jobs as I am. And so I was trying all this stuff, but I was at IDEO and the FBI agent in charge called me and said, you know, we chose you for this job, but we actually can't give it to you because our funding just got slashed because we need people who know Farsi. We need people who are savvy in accounting and understand world affairs way more than the FBI ever needed in the past. And so she's like, I am happy to give you a recommendation, but you're going to have to start all over with the interview process if and when another job comes up. And to me, I was like, okay, well, just because I'm passionate about something and I want to do something doesn't mean I need to do it. And I think that was kind of this pivotal fork in the road, so to speak, of I'm learning a lot from IDEO. I'm getting to work with people that I thoroughly enjoy working with every day. I'm learning all about these amazing companies all over the world, learning how to make user experience and better design. And for me, I just said, okay, well, this is also a passion that I didn't know I had, and I have it now, and I want to pursue it. And so right then and there, after that phone call that I took on the pier in San Francisco with that agent, I decided that from then on there, I was going to go a different path and pursue what it was like to work with designers. So it's sort of interesting because it sounds like your parents were creative professionals at Leo Burnett, Mm -hmm. you know, and you've definitely been adjacent to the designer world for a long time, but you didn't personally choose to pursue it directly as a creative yourself. Right. And so I'm sort of curious, like why you never pursued it directly. And if maybe you could also shed a little light on what it is about the designer personality that you find interesting, because I I find them mostly nuts uh, being one one myself. I'm sort of curious, like why you would subject yourself to that. I know. I think for me, I like to check the boxes and I like to get things done and I like to be super efficient and move things along as you two obviously know. But at the same time, I really like to understand people who have a creative mind. I feel like I have a creative mind, but I don't feel like I could ever put pen to paper or design something out as I think some people do. And maybe it's a confidence thing for me. Maybe if I just tried, I could do it. But for me, I just, I really liked being able to do all the stuff that the designers didn't like doing, you know, like for me to be like, let me help you plan this project or let me help you get in front of the right people, or let me help you with your career path. Like for me, that's stuff that actually drives me way more than it is than doing designing. And so for me, I like to work with designers because I selfishly get to be around all of that creativity all the time, but I still get to do what I want to do, which is kind of the more business side of things and the more type A type of personality. As terms of subjecting myself to creatives, honestly, I grew up with them, right? I don't think I've known any different, to be honest. So I think being raised in that creative environment and kind of understanding what those personalities are like probably set me up to work really well with creatives now and have an empathy for folks in the design field that other people probably need to have, right? And so part of my job is I get to help educate other people about that and tell people how designers work or how to work with them or how they tick in order to make kind of a 
teamwork better. So it's very clear to us because we work with you day in and day out that the the type <laughs> A DNA that's in you, it's a superpower. It's really helped you and it's helped you build an amazing career in the technology world. So if we were to catch listeners up a little bit, you ended up going from IDEO, which if you don't know anything about design, landing at IDEO is sort of like, oh, I played a little baseball and I ended up on this team called the Yankees, just like, you know, by accident. And that led to a career at Hot Studio. Most listeners might not know of it, but it ended up being acquired by Facebook and influencing Facebook in a pretty significant way. And then later you ended up at Pinterest and each step of the way you made your mark with that type A DNA that you have in you. Does that superpower ever become sort of like a kryptonite for you too, where you've like got to line up the boxes and keep the things going forward, checking things off the list? Do you wrestle with that too? Oh yeah. I mean, I think people have become so dependent on it especially like people in my life, I've never not been able to like not plan a vacation. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's just kind of like, because I have this personality, everybody kind of relies on me to kind of continue doing that stuff, planning things, putting things together. And so it is my kryptonite in terms of, I don't think I ever really give myself a break or give myself the ability to relax from that. And I think that's, what I'm trying to do right now, but I think it's hard, right? When you're a perfectionist and a people pleaser, it's hard to take a step back and be like, nope, I'm just going to work on me. Is that where that comes from? That like the drive for when do you consider, when you describe yourself as type A, do you say that in a positive way? Do you consider that an asset? And then do you experience yourself as being driven? So what's interesting is that I think I don't know if this is with you guys, but for me, it's like when people doubt you or think that you can't do something, it drives me even more, right? So, you know, for example, when I was in college, I started out at the Catholic University of America and I had a full scholarship there, which was great. However, it was a really tiny, tiny university in Washington, D.C. And I wanted to go to a bigger college. I grew up in Colorado. I wanted to move back to Colorado. I wanted to go to Boulder. And for me, I actually wanted to go back to Boulder because they had, you know, five pages worth of classes I could take versus three classes I could take at Catholic University on like a subject. So for me, it was actually, I really wanted to go back and get an education where I wasn't forced to take four semesters of religion, four semesters of a language, four semesters of philosophy. Like I wanted to open my horizons a little bit and not be on such a straight path. And my future sister-in-law at the time looked at me and said, if you switch colleges, you're just going to turn into a dropout. Like you're not going to be anything. You're not going to be anybody. You're just going to go back there. You're going to throw away a scholarship and you're never going to graduate from college. And so For me, that was perfect. That was my ammo because I finished college in three and a half years. I was like, you want to see that I can't do it? I'll show you that I can. And so I feel like my personality has kind of always been like that is that, you know, we've all had work experiences where we've had bad bosses or, you know, people who don't believe in what you do or have doubts in it. And I think for me, I take that as ammo and I flip it around and I do something good with it or I try to do something good with it and prove people wrong. Maybe that's not mentally healthy, but I mean, it works for me. So yeah, I'm driven. Do you think that stems from the moving around so much as a child and having to constantly reestablish and prove yourself in these new communities? Probably. Yeah. That's probably exactly where it stemmed from. 
So there's sort of a darker side of that. It's great that you're, you know, can be driven, can be very focused and organized. You talked a little bit about how sometimes that's expensive because people rely on you so much. And, you know, that can take a lot of energy out of you. And there was a point not so long ago where professionally you felt a little burnt out, like it was time for a break. I wonder if you could just tell us about that and where you find yourself today. Of course. So about two and a half years ago, I left Pinterest after being their head of design operations and helping build the design team from 10 people up. That's where I met Bob. Yeah. Um, lucky me. <laughs> I feel the same. He's the one that gave me that amazing opportunity. So I'm sitting here very happy about that. But yeah, I mean, for me, going to Pinterest was my dream job. It was my dream come true. I was obsessed with the product. Absolutely loved what Pinterest was doing. I loved the challenge of being able to go in and help start and build a design team for them. But, you know, five years later, you get a little tired being in the tech world and being in the startup world. Things move really fast. Expectations are really high. And you're just kind of constantly on. And for me... You know, I was told very specifically, we can't tell when you're burned out because you still perform at a pace that most people do when they are not burned out. And for me, I was like, oh, well, I think that's a compliment. But then I also couldn't show anybody that I like really needed to slow down and assess things. And so my husband and I, we lived in San Francisco for, I'd lived there for 17 years, seen it change a lot. And so my husband grew up down in Carmel Valley, and we decided to move down here and live a much quieter life. And for me, I think it was absolutely terrifying not knowing that I didn't know where I was going to go next. I'd always kind of had steps in my career where I would go from this job to this job and do this. And for once, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I think that was kind of the greatest challenge of all is stepping back and being okay with that and realizing what's going to make me happy, but also taking time to decompress. And I realize a lot of people don't have the fortune of being able to do that. And so for me, I felt incredibly blessed to be able to come down here and figure out what makes me tick again and what I'm excited about and what aspects of my job I loved, what did I hate, and focus kind of on other things other than just being at a tech startup. And so now I've been down here two and a half years and I do all sorts of crazy things. Like I have an Etsy shop. That's why I chose Etsy where I sell dog collars and make dog collars. You know, I'm helping run a design ops community where we have over 2000 members on a Slack channel and we run events every month and do coaching and consulting on design operations. And then I get the opportunity to work with both of you guys and helping put this amazing podcast together. And for me, it's something that I've never done. So it's fun and it's challenging. And Aaron, I've never got to work with you prior. And so it's really fun to be able to work with people that you like and put something together and build something because you want to and because you're curious. And I think all of us were at the same point in our lives where we were figuring out what was next and what makes us happy and what makes us tick and how do you do that? And like we've said before, I think this podcast was kind of selfish for all of us to get the opportunity to meet with all of these amazing people and authors and you know experts in their fields and us having the opportunity to ask the hard questions to them and feeling a little bit better about ourselves and feeling like we're all in this together and we're not on these islands alone. And so I think that's been really fun and really rewarding. And the best part about this is I think I feel busier now than I was when I had a full-time job because I'm doing so many different projects, but it's all stuff I'm really passionate about and I'm finding ways to make it work. 
one thing that people don't know about you is that you deal with chronic migraines. I do. And that interrupts your day-to-day life. Yeah. How does that affect you personally and professionally and how do you cope? I mean, honestly, it's so hard. I struggle a lot with it. And I think a lot of people who have a chronic illness struggle too, because one thing is, is that with migraines, people can't really tell you're in a lot of pain, you know? Like, I think people who know you really well will be like, oh, like your eyes are black or whatever. But like, at the end of the day, I think people who suffer from chronic migraines and chronic illnesses have a really good way of kind of powering through and making it look like you're okay when you're not okay. And so I think for me, having incredibly supportive people in every aspect of my career has been really important. And I think I've been very open with managers and with people that I work with about what I'm going through and how I'm struggling and how some days are going to be better than others, you know? And that doesn't mean that I'm not giving it my all. It just means that today might be a slower day, but don't worry, I'll I'll bust my ass tomorrow to get something done. I think since I left my full-time job at Pinterest and because of medical progression, thank God for that, you know, my migraines have gone from 15 a month, maybe down to four or five. Wow. And so that's a dramatic change from having one every day or every other day. Yeah. And I think what people don't realize is the migraine itself is just a portion of what you're experiencing. Like the side effects before they come, you know, are pretty hard. And then you feel like you've got the flu or like hung over without the ability to drink any alcohol and having fun after for a day or two. So it's kind of like, I was just kind of in this constant state of misery for a long time and still trying to function. And I think the more that I started to open up about it with people and people that I managed as well, the more people felt comfortable talking about their own issues and their own, if they have their own illnesses. And so I think it's really important to keep invisible illnesses top of mind when we're talking about the workplace and when we're talking about personal lives, because everybody's going to have a different experience and everybody's going to deal with things differently. But like, I think we need to have a lot more empathy around it than we already do and education about it too. So hopefully we'll have somebody on soon about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I know this is one of the things we want to talk about in season two in particular and something we've been working on with the show. At this point, you know, we've got 10, 11 episodes recorded. And, you know, when you reflect on those episodes, I'm wondering, you know, what your takeaway has been sort of from the process of making the show, if there's any particular episodes or or guests that really stood out for you. Like, what have you learned from our time together on reconsidering so far? I think the one thing that I've learned that I'm, I'm really excited to share is that And Bob, I think you taught me this, and I've said this to you before, is that I actually really like reaching out to potential authors and potential guests where I would say before I would be so nervous and be like, oh, okay, well, is this email going to go into the trash bin? Are they going to get this email? Are they going to respond back with something nasty or be like not interesting? But I have to say, it's actually been incredibly rewarding to reach out to some of these folks and hear back from them, good or bad, and just say, you know, hey, I don't have the time right now, but like, good luck with the show, or oh my gosh, absolutely, this sounds right up my alley. I would love to collaborate with you guys and chat with you, and you know, maybe we could cross collaborate with other stuff. So I think that's been really fun and has kind of like spread my wings a little bit in terms of always being someone in the background and kind of pushing myself forward to be a little bit more outgoing and salesman-like, so to speak. Gosh, who we've interviewed, we've had some pretty remarkable people on. I'm really excited for everyone to hear Catherine May. She'll be a few months out. I think 
her talking about wintering and these kind of like dark periods in your life and how you get through them really resonated with me on so many different levels. And I think everybody goes through those dark periods. And just the conversation with her was just so honest and refreshing and vulnerable. And I think I know that word vulnerable gets used a lot now, but I think a lot of the conversations that we are having with these folks are vulnerable and it's fun to open up and it's fun to hear what they have to say. And it's fun also to talk to people who aren't in the tech world, you know, like who aren't necessarily driven in the tech world, but that have other careers and other professions. So she was really exciting. Vipula Gandhi was another one who we just had on. I thought, I mean, just her experience and just the stats, it's just so reaffirming to hear from a stat point of view that everybody's going through the same thing we're going through, right? It's not just people talking. It's like we actually have data. So I thought that was pretty cool as well. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you, and as a man, not a Southerner by birth, but Southerner just uh, by chance, I know better than to ask a woman her age, but you recently had a significant milestone. I sure did. And I wonder, how does that make you feel? when you think about what's next? Well, so I just turned 40. I'm happy to say that. I think you two are the (laughs) ones that got me comfortable with actually telling people my age now. And I think for me, I was really dreading it. But then I actually just read Midlife and we're having Karen Zatia on very soon in season two. And it actually was so comforting to hear that your life actually gets a lot better after the age of 40. And, you know, your life is kind of shaped like a U. You start out really strong, you start declining, and then you start going right back up. And so now I'm kind of actually looking forward to it. I've reframed the way that I think about things. I'm not looking back and regretting things that I didn't do because without some of those choices, I wouldn't be where I am today, you know? And I think that's really important to remember is, oh, I could have gone the criminology route. I could have been really, really headstrong with that. But if I would have done that and if I would have ended up there, like, would I be married? Would I be living in Carmel Valley? Would I have met you two? No. And so I look back and I actually don't have any regrets. And I think that I'm excited for what's to come and I wouldn't change a thing. Fantastic. So thank you for helping me get over that hump. I think that's been one of the most interesting things about the show is it's both for us as the hosts and the creators, but I think also for the listeners, it it's just nice to know that we're not all so alone, you know, mm. that a lot yeah. of this stuff is just the shared experience of living a human life and that we're all sort of, uh, you know, for better, for worse, kind of painfully normal to be experiencing all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Meredith, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about yourself and your story today. Thanks for having me on. As if you had a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. <laughs>